All right, well, good morning. We welcome you to part 12 in our series through the Song of Solomon. And this morning, you notice, we're talking about the art of conflict resolution, parts two. A few years ago, I went to Pete's Hardware. I love Pete's Hardware because they have amazing service there. And um, I went there because my wife, Tracy, asked me to go and pick up some paint because she was requesting that we paint our master bathroom and she wanted the color it painted goldenrod. And I said, okay. So I I walked up to this kind of, he was kind of an older, crusty kind of guy, like a veteran there. And uh, he said, can I help you? And I said, yeah. I go, my wife sent me here and I, I need to paint our master bathroom and she wants it to be painted goldenrod. And he looked at me and he said, he motioned like, like, a, like a maestro orchestrating all of the people in the orchestra. He made this call out to all these other employees, all these other boys. He goes, gather around, boys. And all of a sudden, all these guys kind of huddled up. And he, I'm like, what is he doing? He goes, boys, I want to teach you something about marriage. And I'm listening. He goes, now this young man came to me. He's calling me a young man. So I immediately liked him. He goes, this young man came to me. His wife sent him here. And her request is that he paint their bathroom goldenrod. He goes, boys, do you understand how many shades of goldenrod there are? (laughs) There are dozens of shades of goldenrod. So he said, you don't want to end up sleeping on the couch. So this is what you do. And he handed me all these swabs, these different colors and shit. He goes, young man, you take this back to your wife. You let her pick the color. You bring them back. We mix the paint. And then guess what? You paint it that color and everyone is happy. And you know what I did? I did exactly what that guy said. And my wife was happy. Now, when we come to the Song of Solomon... And we come to here, chapter 5, verses 2, to chapter 6, verse 13. It's like Solomon says, gather around, boys and girls. I'm going to teach you something about marriage. How to avoid pain in your marriage. Listen up, because this is super important. Wow. Now, the Song of Solomon is about one couple, right? It's about Solomon, the man, and the Shulamite, the woman. And Solomon is detailing, sharing with us throughout the book, the different stages of their romantic relationship. He's already married. He's writing the book after they're married. But he's looking back on their relationship. And if you've been with us, you've seen scene number one was about their attraction, and we studied that. And then scene number two was about their dating life, and we studied that. Scene number three was about their courtship. We studied that. And then scene number four was all about their ceremony, their wedding. We studied that. And scene number five was about their intimacy. We studied that. And now we're studying about this next stage, which is conflict resolution. Now, last Sunday I gave you kind of three introductory comments. Let's do a little review to kind of catch up real briefly. Number one, we said conflict in marriage is inevitable. Can you say that word with me? Inevitable. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 7, 28, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Not some, many. And we talked about how marital conflict tends to arise from one of five sources. A failure of communication, financial difficulties, sexual difficulties, problems with in-laws, 
disagreements about child rearing. Those are like the big five. So every marriage, there's going to be conflict. Second, conflict resolution is an art that anyone can learn. It's something we learn, though. God doesn't want this lingering sense of conflict to divide your marriage and body, soul, and spirit. He doesn't want that for any marriage. But conflict resolution doesn't happen naturally. It's kind of unnatural in the sense that we have to learn it. We need to actually learn the art, the skill that is required to resolve conflict. Healthy marriages are able to face conflict and negotiate that conflict to resolution. Paul said in Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Every marriage is called to peace, but not every marriage gets there because one or both in in the marriage don't know how to resolve conflict. So conflict in marriage, it's inevitable. It's an art that anyone can learn. Third, God wants to help us improve our conflict resolution in marriage. So in this session, we're going to give you three steps. Last Sunday, we gave you just step one. We're going to cover all three steps on how to resolve conflict in marriage, any marriage. doesn't matter whether you're facing mild, mid-level, or really, you know, extreme kind of severe conflict. These steps will work. Now, first, let's review the nature of the conflict that arose with Solomon and the Shulamite. And again, we covered this last Sunday, but we need to know the context. In chapter 5, verses 2 to 6, Solomon comes home from a long day at work, like you would. And he wanted intimacy with his wife. And in those days, they they slept in separate rooms. And she wasn't letting him in the door. She was blocking him. She was already in bed. And... We've got conflict. We mentioned how Ken Sand in his book, The Peacemaker, said conflict is a difference in opinion of, or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. So when your goals or desires get frustrated, you have conflict. And rem- remember, Solomon is the king of Israel. What would you do if you were Solomon and your wife is not letting you in the door? Remember what Solomon did in chapter 5, verses 4 to 5. He did not break the door down. He didn't storm in. He didn't yell. He slid his hand inside the door and he placed liquid myrrh ointment on the inside handle. And in the Hebrew culture, that, that was a beautiful thing. It was like, for us, it would be sending a love letter or a box of candies or a dozen roses. It meant, I love you. It was amazing. There's this, this incredible tender act of love. So what's the first thing you do when there's conflict, when your mate hurts you? It's not natural. It's actually actually supernatural. The first thing you do is this. Refuse to react. Choose to respond. Solomon did not react. In other words, he did not react in the same manner in which she acted toward him. This is where conflict escalates. She does something to you or he does something to you. You do the same thing back or you one-up them. And the way you eliminate conflict is you don't react, you respond. So your spouse hurts you, you don't have to hurt them back. Who says you have to do that? If you continue to do that, you're just going to escalate conflict. Those who eliminate conflict, you respond. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other. Underline that, always try to be kind. Your response is subject to your will. You can respond with the love of God and the patience of the Holy Spirit, 
rather than a revengeful and impatient spirit of man. Instinctive reaction is never the road to conflict resolution. Our goal as Christians is to respond the way Jesus would respond. You don't react in the flesh, you respond in the spirit. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, with what? Good. Like put ointment on the inside of the door handle. Solomon, she did you wrong. You're the king of Israel. You're the head of the home. Why did you put myrrh on that door handle? Solomon would have answered, because my standard for conduct is not my wife's standard. It's God's call on my life. This is possible only in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first step for conflict resolution, refuse to react. You choose to respond the way Jesus would respond. So we covered that last Sunday. The second step for conflict resolution is this. So rather than reacting, you respond the way Jesus would respond. And then second, rely on God to change their heart. You rely on God to change your spouse's heart. You see, as a husband or wife, I'm called to love my spouse and care for my spouse. But watch this. I'm never called to change my spouse. I'm not called to be God to them. I'm not called to be the Holy Spirit to them. Yes, I'm to communicate with him or her, but I'm never called to change him or her. That's God's job. See, whenever you start trying to change your spouse, you start manipulating your spouse. You start bargaining with your mate. You start prostituting your mate. If you do this, I will do that. That's not ministry, that's manipulation. Let God change your spouse. See, our job is to respond like Jesus. God's job is to change their hearts. And when we do our job, God is faithful to do his job. But if we don't do our job, wow, you got conflict, and it's going to escalate. Daniel 4.37 says, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I mean, when someone walks in pride, when your spouse has hurt you, God is able to humble them. You've got to get out of the way, though, and give God room to work. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God can change your spouse's heart. But not if you take the role of God. There's just going to be war. See, God has a way of changing someone's heart when we act like God in the circumstances. The Shulamite, in this circumstances, this circumstance, she acted selfishly. I mean, she blocked Solomon out of the room. Solomon didn't react. He responded like Jesus. He demonstrated the love and gentleness of God. Notice what happens to the Shulamite's heart because of how Solomon responded. Chapter 5, verse 6. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. In this case, there was this immediate sense in her heart that she blew it. Immediate conviction, immediate remorse, immediate regret. Her heart sank. What if Solomon bounded on the door and, and just was, you know, calling her names? Do you think there'd be any remorse? But because he responded like Christ and then gave her time, her heart sank. And notice what she does in chapter 5, verse 6 to 7. I looked for him, but I didn't find him. I called him, but he did not answer. 
So he walked away from the door. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak. Those watchmen on the walls. Now she is searching for Solomon to make things right. And the watchmen, they find her and they beat her. Not literally. This is figuratively. This is Hebrew poetry. This is poetry talking about the inner you know, feelings of what's going on in the Shulamite's heart. She's talking about the state of her heart, her emotions, her spiritual condition. She felt beat up inside, bruised inside. Her cloak was gone. She felt, felt exposed. I mean, she's looking in the mirror going, what did I just do? And notice, Solomon, he did not inflict the pain upon her. It was the watchmen, the faithful guardians of God's people. It was her conscience that was speaking to her. Today, the Holy Spirit is that faithful watchman, if your spouse is a Christian, that will convict them. You see, if your spouse wrongs you and you respond like Jesus, that gives God some time to work on your mate's heart. Solomon responded in love. He walked away. He didn't storm out. He wisely gave her time to absorb the situation. Sometimes you need time to realize you really blew it. Don't try to change your mate. Let God change your mate. Don't try to be God. Let God be God. If you act like Jesus, it's just a matter of time before your spouse will come looking for you, and they're going to come looking for you in a spirit of repentance. I mean, what are your options when you are offended by your spouse? Think about it. You can leave your spouse. God says no. You can kill your spouse. God says go for it. No, he didn't say that. God says, no, you can't do that either, although there's times you feel like it, right? Or think about what you can do when you're offended by your spouse. What are you going to do? Or you can act like Jesus, giving them time, and let God change them. They know they're in the wrong, but watch this. They won't know they're in the wrong if you stoop to their level and you do battle at their level. They're never going to know they're in the wrong because you're taking the role of God. But you notice here the Shulamite's complete change of heart. Listen to what she says about her man. In verses 8 through 16, all she does is she brags about him. I mean, no woman brags about an angry, mean-spirited husband. But a husband who is gentle, a husband who loves her in spite of her sin, of blocking her man out. I mean, a guy who acts and treats her like Jesus would, even in spite of what she did. Wow. Her whole, whole heart changes. In chapter 5, verse 8, she says, O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am am faint with love. She's saying, ladies of Jerusalem, announcement. Help me find my husband. If you find him, just tell him he's the greatest guy in the whole world. I love him. And notice how the daughters or the friends respond with a question in chapter 5, verse 9. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that... You charge us so. You talk about setting it up on a tee. Listen to how she just elaborates on how Solomon is the greatest husband ever. Chapter 5, verse 10. Well, my lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. She's saying, I've got the greatest guy in the universe. You line up 10,000 guys, he's the greatest husband of them all. Chapter 5, verse 11. His head is purest gold. 
His hair is wavy and black as a raven. She's saying, he has divine leadership over me. He's pure and untainted. He wi- willingly, he forgives me, even when I didn't deserve it. Chapter 5, verse 12, his eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, <coughs> mounted like jewels. This is the idea of peaceful stability. Again, this is poetry. You have to look at what is this communicating? It's communicating something profound. Solomon's eyes were like that of a dove in a peaceful setting. Solomon was a man of self-control. Watch this. His eyes didn't narrow and flare in anger. This is what she's saying. His eyes were unchanging, consistent like solid jewels. This is what she's saying. This is the kind of man I have. He didn't react. He responded like Christ, and her heart is melting. She's convicted, and she just can't think. She can't say enough about her husband. His cheeks are like beds of of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like drippings of myrrh. What does that mean? She's saying Solomon was inviting. I mean, she wanted to draw near to his lips of kindness and his cheeks of tenderness and gentleness. Chapter 5, verse 14. His arms are rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. When's the last time you said that to your man? But she's saying his his arms are like gold. The way he handled her, he was pure is what she's getting at. Gentle. This guy is kind. Chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. She's just elaborating. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. She's saying he's strong, he's solid, he's steadfast, he's a rock, he's immovable. This is my man. Chapter 5, verse 16, his mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She's saying, this is my husband. I love this guy. He treats me like Jesus, even when I don't deserve it. She can't say enough about him. This is what that, all of this poetry is getting at. Watch this. Why is she saying this? You've got to connect the dots. Why? And your wife will say this about you if you connect the dots. Why? The reason is, is because instead of reacting in vengeance, Solomon treated her with gentleness. Love, forgiveness. She is saying, my man, his hands, his feet, his body, his cheeks, his lips, his words, his hair, his eyes, his arms, his legs, his heart. He is so tender. I can't believe the man I married. By the way, that's a man. A man is not someone who yells at his wife and demeans his wife. The moments I cringe the most are in public when I hear a man berating a woman. You have to know in my heart what I want to do. (laughs) That is not a man. That is not a man who does that to a woman. A man is someone who loves his wife with gentleness, tenderness, and forgiveness even when she blocks him out. He leads her with example. Gentleness, you see, is strength under control. Stu Weber has written a book called Tender Warrior. 
That title, Tender Warrior, in my opinion, is the best word picture that summarizes a biblical definition of what it means to be a man. A man, according to the Bible, is a tender warrior, which means this. A man could rip her apart. He has the power to do that, but he doesn't. He loves her tenderly with gentleness. He is a warrior, but he's tender in heart the way he responds, not reacts, to his wife. And by the way, this type of love from a husband to a wife will make a wife go ape for her husband. I mean crazy for her husband. You talk about romance. The next two sessions we're going to talk about you know, romance. This is the basis of it. A man who is gentle toward his wife this way, wow, will send her into orbit emotionally for that guy. And because of this gentle love, God changes her heart and she loves him back. You see, how do we resolve conflict? You don't react. You don't react what they just showed you. You respond because your response is an act of your will, and because God's in you, you have the power to respond like Jesus. And then after you respond like Jesus, you kind of back away. Show love. Put ointment on the door. Give God time to calm her heart, to speak to her about what she has done. Let God change their heart. Don't you be God. Let God be God. Give your spouse the time to process your gentle love Let God bring them around. Now, many of you in your marriages, you've been married, uh, many of you, someone here this morning told me, 40 years. Congratulations. You've learned, yeah, we can give that up. (laughs) Stacy and Sherry. And many of you have been married longer than that. Or maybe not as long as that, but you've learned, watch this, you're learning. Conflict resolution skills are learned. And so what I want you to do right now is, no one's perfect in this. You're learning. But here's the question I want you to talk about. How can you grow in the area of relying on God to change your spouse's heart? Many of you are making so much improvement in this, and God is teaching you. Would you talk about that at your tables for just a couple minutes? Go for it. In 2008, I know that's a while ago, but I was on the Indian Ocean then on a missions trip. I was actually on a ship, a large ship in a remote area, and India is a massive country. And we were on the ship sailing from one port to another, and uh, I was like, what the heck? I'm going to ask to see the captain. So I just requested, is there a way I can see the captain? I just, I'm not too shy when it comes to that. And uh, Tracy's like, what, what? I'm like, no, let's go see if we can get up to the bridge. I've always wanted to, like, steer one of these ships. I literally wanted to see if he'd let me. And actually, he did, which was so cool. But so they brought us to the bridge. And uh, I remember walking in, and here he is in all his dressed whites and everything, and shook his hand. And then he looked at my wife, and he grabbed Tracy's hand and just took it up and kissed it, you know, right like that. And he goes, so I take it you two are married. And I go, yeah, this is my wife, Tracy, and I'm Mark, and... And he goes, so you know about the three rings of marriage? And I said, uh, no, I don't. He goes, well, there's three, three rings. He goes, there's the engagement ring. I go, yeah. And he goes, then there's the wedding ring. Yeah. 
And he said, and then there's this suffering. <laughs> and he did exactly what you're doing. He started laughing, and I was like, I'm going to get along with this guy great. And we just had a good old time. So what we're doing right now is, guess what? In marriage, there is the suffering at times. We're learning how to navigate that, though. We're just talking three simple but these are profound steps. I mean, if you do this, you're going to, like, take your conflict. It's going to go so low. You don't react. You respond. Don't redo what they've just shown you. React like Christ. Respond like Christ. And then give them time to take in that response that's so Christ-like. And let me tell you, they're going to be convicted. And then what's the third thing you do? You reconcile by talking and forgiving. In other words, you kiss and you make up. Now, here's the principle. The partner who offended takes the initiative. So look, if you would, at uh, chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 of Matthew. It says here, Jesus said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there remember that your brother or your wife or husband has something against you, uh uh-oh, I did something to offend them, then the thing is, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Do you hear that it's, to God, it's more important that you get right with your spouse than you even come to worship. First, make it right. Then worship. Wow. That's how important this is. Now, in this case, the Shulamite was the one who's in the wrong. She was the offender. Solomon was like the Christ figure. She was blocking him out. And she takes the initiative. I want you to notice that her her friends speak up, and they say this in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Where is your lover gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your lover turn, that we may look for him with you? In other words, she is searching for Solomon to make things right. Because he, he he responded, not reacted. He gave her time, the and, and now her conscience, I'm wrong. She's looking to make it right. And she says, well, my lover has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and, the, and gather lilies. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. So she actually knows where Solomon went. Why? Because Solomon doesn't change. He's a rock. He hasn't run off to his mama's. He hasn't run down to the town bar. He hasn't gone off to his friends to complain about his wife. She knows where he is. I mean, he's doing some agricultural work in his garden as a king. And he is her lover. And she knows that he loves her unconditionally. And that's how a spouse should feel when they know they've done you wrong. You're committed for better or for worse. They know where you are. You haven't gone off running somewhere else where they don't know. They know who you are. They know where you are. You're an unconditional, committed husband or wife. Now, somewhere between chapter 6, verse 3, and chapter 6, verse 4, they talk and make up. Now, we're not given the content of that conversation, but she found Solomon, and, you know, undoubtedly she said, I'm sorry, please forgive me. He forgave her, and the relationship was restored. Now, question. What happens when you talk things through and forgive? Beauty comes back into your marriage. 
Love comes back into your relationship. Friendship is restored. Romance is resurrected. So let me give you this marital equation. Relationship plus reconciliation, when you have that conversation, I forgive you, honey, and all that, that leads to romance. I mean, this is kind of the, the rhythm of marriage. You're going to have conflict. But as you go through this process, romance is resurrected because of that final step of reconciliation. Now, listen to what Solomon says in chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. He says this. This is his response. You are beautiful, my darling, as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem, majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. What is Solomon saying? What is he doing? This is called forgiveness. Solomon is forgiving her. I mean, in the next two verses, Solomon uses the identical language he used on their honeymoon. He's saying, I love you like I've always loved you, honey. Nothing's changed in our relationship, just like on our honeymoon. And he, said, he, he brings this exact language back, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming out from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. You don't look like Leon Spinks, in other words, you know? Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. And just he's just adoring her. And listen to what he goes on to say about her in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Sixty queens there, are, there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The maiden saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. He's saying, you're, only, you're the only girl for me. You're the one that God has for me. This is forgiveness. He's saying, I love you, and I can't even remember what happened. I don't remember what you did. What are you talking about? Clara Barton, uh, head of the Red Cross, was once asked to say something about someone who hurt her, and she said, I distinctly remember forgetting that. That's what reconciliation does. You forgive. You forget, so to speak. Romance is reunited. Reconciliation renews romance. It's like pouring gasoline on the fire of romance. But if there's lingering conflict in your, in your marriage, beloved, I share with you with love, that's not God's plan. And you've got to work through these stages. You've got to humble yourself. Remember, this series is about God's best for romance. God has a great plan for you, but you've got to work through these, step, these steps. Sometimes that takes a lot of humility. Because we look back and it's like, this happened years ago, and it's still there, and you haven't dealt with it. But you know what? God's grace is right here, right now. A new day has begun. Listen to how Solomon describes his own heart after reconciliation. Chapter 6, verses 11 to 12, he says, I went down to the grove of my nut trees uh, to look for a new growth in the valley, to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. So Solomon was saying, after they made up, he now feels like things were as they should be. A king should be with his royal chariots. I mean, after reconciliation, Solomon felt like his marriage was back to its proper place. He's back to work. He's back in his rhythm. I mean, when things aren't in the proper place, man, you're at work, you're there, but man, you're just, you know, the inside. You're doing your job, but... 
just a weight. And then chapter 6, verse 13 is a very interesting verse. The friends are speaking, and they say this, uh, Come back, come back, O Shulamite. By the way, why do we call her the Shulamite? Because that's the name assigned to her right here. Come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? Now, that's a difficult phrase, but most scholars believe the dance of Mahanaim is some form of marital dance associated with the city of Mahanaim, which would be inappropriate for anyone other than Solomon to witness this dance was. It was probably a very suggestive dance, a very romantic dance. In other words, watch this, they were dancing again. How beautiful. There, there was conflict, but they worked through their conflict with these three steps, and now they're dancing again. Because that's what happens when you work through romance is restored. The third key to conflict resolution, reconcile by talking and forgiving. She initiates, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Solomon responds, yes, of course, I forgive you. Romance is resurrected. Now, I'd like you to talk about this. The question is this, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is reconciliation for romance? And when I mean reconciliation, that means there is nothing between you and your spouse that needs to be forgiven. I mean, there is this relationship of open, but when there's bitterness, there's anger, there's unresolved, I mean, whoa. How important for you to have romantic feelings for your husband or wife is this whole thing of reconciliation to that? In other words, is this an important issue? That there be reconciliation for there to be romance? I'd like you to talk about that at your tables. Okay, go for it. Okay, in this session, we've talked about the arts of conflict resolution, okay? What I want to do is as we wrap up, I want to make sure that you've got these main points down. I believe you got them down. I just want to review, make sure, and then I want to do something else to give you for great food for thought, okay? So let's just review briefly. I want to make sure you've got, this is simple, but it's very profound. We gave you three truths about conflict and conflict resolution. It's inevitable. In other words, don't put yourself in the proverbial, you know, bury your head in the sand. You're going to face this. So why not integrate into your life the truths that will help you deal with it? If you're married or you're thinking about getting married, you're watching this, you're going to face conflict. So why don't you face it with God's principles to help you go from conflict to resolution? Learn these principles. It's an art anyone can learn. But you are not naturally born with this. It, it does not go according to just natural inclination. It's actually unnatural. It's supernatural. God wants to help you improve this area. But you've got to receive that improvement and begin to apply it. So if this is just in one ear and out the other, well, you probably shouldn't have come or watching it on video. I mean, come on. I mean, are you really here to grow? God wants to transform you. But you've got to begin integrating this into your life. 
And it's going to take a little time. It's going to take a little bit of practice like anything. So what are the steps? You refuse to react. You choose to respond. You don't react what they, your spouse did to you. Whether it was a word or something they didn't do, what they said they would, you don't react that. You respond. And then you act like Jesus. That's how you treat them. You put myrrh on the door handle. Whatever that looks like for you, God will lead you. Wow, what a conflict resolver you will be if that is your response. And then you give them time for God to change their heart. Just back away. Walk away. Give God the opportunity, the Holy Spirit, to convict them. And then when they come to you, reconcile. Listen to them. Forgive. And let romance come back into your relationship. That may sound super simple, but really, it is. If you do those three things, you're going to be moving in a direction that is so exciting for your marriage. So right now, if in your marriage there is any lingering, unresolved conflict, you have the opportunity to walk from here and to begin integrating these principles into your life and start showing God's love not reacting, but responding to your spouse and moving toward resolution. You can't change them. <laughs> All you can do is change yourself. And guess what? You're not called to change your spouse. You are called to change you. And as long as you focus on that, guess what? God's going to say to you one day, if your spouse never changes, God's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But you're never going to know if your spouse might change, unless you act like Jesus. Because if you keep going to their level, duking it out, they're never going to change. People don't change that way. People change when God touches their heart, when you act like Jesus. So refuse to react, choose to respond, rely on God to change their heart, and then reconcile by talking and forgiving. You do your parts, God will do his parts. When you do your part according to his word. Now, let me give you three things as we wrap up. Let me give you 20 things to never do. Um, we couldn't cover everything. There is so much more about conflict resolution that's talked about in the Bible. But I want to give you 20 things to never do. These are conflict minimizers. If you find yourself doing these things, you are escalating conflict in your marriage. These are things to never do. And when you choose not to do these things, you will minimize conflict, if not eliminate it. Marriages that are always in conflict are so because they violate, the, they violate the first three things we taught you that Solomon and the Shulamite modeled, and they also violate these 20 rules or guidelines. Never raise your voice at your home. Never. You can say everything in a gentle tone. You can now, if you want to react, you'll yell all the time. But responding? That's... See, God's call on a husband and on a wife is to respond, not react. You can respond with gentleness. Never publicly embarrass your mates. You see, when I see that happening, I go, wow, what's it like in their home? If this has happened publicly, what is happening privately? Never argue in front of the children. Never use the kids to win an argument. 
Never talk about your spouse outside of your marriage. If I ever got word that Tracy had said something about me to someone else negatively, that would just crush me. Crush me. It would break our trust. We never do that. When I hear guys berating their wives on the golf course or whatever, man, you ought to hear how I talk about my wife on the golf course. They can't believe the marriage that I have. And I, I, no one has ever heard me say something negative about Tracy because I don't think I ever have. Why would I? She's not perfect. I'm called to esteem her, build her up. Why would anyone ever talk negatively about her? I don't get that. I don't get it. But when you do that, it says one thing. You've got conflict. You've got problems with yourself. But you've got big-time problems in your marriage with yourself because you're just escalating conflict with that. Never use sex to win. Never touch in anger. Never call names. Never get historical and call into account a wrong suffered. Well, I remember, you know, five years ago, six months ago. Hey, if you're, you should be, I mean, this reconciliation should be happening all, there's never looking back and bringing, those are, and we do this, I get it, but I'm saying these are the things you want to begin to eliminate. Never stomp out. Ah, oh, is that a man who stomps out? Are you kidding me? You can't lead your wife to healing? You're going to stomp out? What is that saying about you? Whoa. Never use the in-laws. Never let the sun go down in your anger and give the devil an opportunity. Never fail to listen to your mates. Never harden yourself toward your spouse. Never speak rashly. Weigh your words before you speak. Never say never, like we have a hundred times in this right here. And never say always. And what I mean by that is you, want, you don't want to say, I never recall that, or you always, those kind of things. Just When you say you never or you always, whoa, those are just words that escalate conflict in marriage. Never win an argument. I see this on TV all the time, and it makes, breaks my heart. It's all about winning an argument. If you win an argument, you lose your spouse. Why would you want to win an argument that crushes your spouse? You, you don't press to victory. You press to resolve. That's love. The other is war. Never demean. Never interrupt. I mean, these are like, these are supernatural things that we're called to do. We, I mean, man, we all struggle with all of this. Never use rude body language. Whoa, these are things to never do that will minimize conflict. Let me give you five things to always do. These are conflict resolution helps. We didn't talk about this. These are other thoughts that I just pass on to you. Always seek forgiveness from God for any anger or bitterness that is in your own hearts. If right now you have bitterness, anger toward your spouse in your own heart, that's sin. We are called to forgive. Now, forgiveness is different than reconciliation. But you need to bring that sin, that bitterness before God and ask His forgiveness because you're holding on to that. Reconciliation is different. That takes two. Forgiveness, you and God. Always affirm your commitment and love to your spouse verbally. 
Always ask for forgiveness if you've wronged them. Always commit to a new path. If you're like struggling, you know, with this whole thing of there's conflict, well, there's a new path you can take. And you explore that. You get counseling. You whatever. You go after a new path. Always pray together for a new commitment to resolving conflict. Let me give you two questions to discuss with your spouse. When you get home, these would be great questions. The first is this. Of the three principles presented, which principle, rewrite it, say, am I modeling the best? Of the three principles presented, which principle am I modeling the best? The second question, what are one or two principles that need improving and how can I make improvement? Wow, that would be great. Um, Let me give you one project to do for your spouse. If you are experiencing mid-level or severe conflict in your marriage, this is something I have taken dozens of couples through. It's called a conflict resolution covenant, and it can mean all the difference in the world. But it works this way. You see there's two covenants there, one for him, one for her. So if I'm the man, I would sign, I would say, I, Mark, commit to... And then we would have a discussion about the things I need to work on. And I'm covenanting before God and my wife with, maybe it's I need to commit to uh, speaking in a gentle voice. I'm going to commit to not interrupting you. Because these are the things we've identified that when I do that, I escalate conflict. And I'm wanting to grow. And so I'm asking my wife, what are the things I need to covenant to so I can grow in this area? And then you sign it and you date it. And then the same thing for her. She does the same thing. This, this may help you to move toward conflict resolution. All right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for the wonder, the mystery of marriage. Lord, uh, oftentimes marriage is not about our happiness. It's about our holiness. And marriage, it's like holy sandpaper, and it's humbling, and God, it reveals so many of our flaws. There are no perfect marriages, Lord, and we just thank you that there's this reminder, this truth that we're all going to face conflict, and we just thank you. You haven't left us alone. Uh, Conflict resolution, it's an art we can learn, and we thank you for these principles that we see in this book. And Lord, just grant us your grace and your power to refuse to react, but that we would respond like Jesus. Grant us your power to live this way, to not react what they just did to us, but respond in the Spirit and like Christ. And then to just kind of back away and rely on you, Lord, to change their hearts. And that may take some time. So give us patience. And then ultimately, though, when they do come to us, help us to reconcile by talking and forgiving. And if we need to go to our spouse, Lord, give us the grace to do that, the boldness to do that, the humility to do that, and admit where we're kind of in the wrong. So help us to take what we've learned today. Help us to discuss these things with our spouse, to grow in this art of conflict resolution. Lord, this is part of your plan for romantic relationships. 
that we learn this arts of conflict resolution. So we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.